Former President Trump takes the stand in New York City today in his fraud trial. That's 635. We'll get the latest on that. Right now, they're going to talk with CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger because the open enrollment period for your health care plan is now open. And while you may feel tempted to choose everything the same as just what you did last year, Jill is urging you to read a little deeper and do some research because things can change. The plans change all the time. And, you know, you think, ah, I'm just going to do what I did last year, except it could be a real difference. It could be that your doctor's no longer in your network. It could be the drug that was covered last year is not. It could be that you have a new medication that is covered. So all these pieces, all these variables have to come together. It does start with you just writing what, down what, who are your doctors, what medications are you taking, and this is whether you get your plant, your health care through the government, through Medicare, the Affordable Care Act, or through your workplace, through an employer. I think the employer plans are really a little bit thornier because it's almost like too many choices. But broadly speaking, there are three big types of plans, okay? One is a plan where there is a, a network. Your doctor is in the network. You got to use the network. That's it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And, you know, there's really not uh, the, the price of those health maintenance organizations, those kinds of plans, they're usually lower. The next kind of plan is usually a slightly more expansive network, but also the ability to go outside of the network. It'll cost you some money, but you have that ability. The third kind of plan is something that has really started to take off a lot in popularity, and it's called a high deductible health plan. A high deductible health plan is what it sounds like. It has a high deductible in exchange for a lower premium. And so a lot of people kind of dig this. They're like, this is sort of cool because, you know, I have a, a lower premium. But, you know, remember, the, the price for that is that you've got to save some money to pay for your higher deductible. And the government makes that kind of an interesting, um, adds a, an interesting twist to it. They have a vehicle that allows you to save pre-tax in something called a health savings account. A health savings account is kind of the cool thing. It's like triple tax advantage. The money that goes in has not been taxed. So it's, a, it's you know, pre-tax money. As it stays in that account, there's no tax due. It doesn't matter how you invest it. When you take it out to pay for health care, no tax due. Wow. And it, importantly, with HSAs, you know, remember the old flexible spending accounts, yes. which, by the way, now have like three grand a year, which is pretty nice. But that was a use it or you, it's a use it or lose it function, meaning it, you got, you, you can put three grand a year away, but you better actually use yeah. it in the next year. Or they year just or, take the excess money away from you, which is Yeah. Crazy. And you may be able to use like a 600 of it the following year, but it's, it's time bound. A health savings account is not, and it is yours. And this is pretty important because if you are saving money for the future and you can say, I'm saving this with triple tax advantage and I can live with that for my whole life and I can save for things that are unreimbursed from Medicare and use that health savings account, huge advantage. We're hearing from CBS's Jill Schlesinger, and I find this frustrating. Maybe you do too, because you're being asked basically to try and forecast how sick you're going to be and which specialists you're going to need. But Jill says there you, you do get a little help. It is some guesswork, let's be clear. And that's why so many people will default to whatever they did the prior year. In a money in a funny way, okay, I, I would I would say that the Affordable Care Act is a great model. 
I mean, there's 15 million people who are using the Affordable Care Act. It is like the unsung hero of the healthcare universe because actually there's only four plans. That's it. And and like, okay, I look at these four plans. There's different cost sharing that we have. And then if you don't make enough money, you get some help. You get a tax credit potentially and a way to minimize out-of-pocket expenses. And it, it kind of prompts you for that help just in the enrollment period at healthcare.gov. So in some ways, I just think it's become overly complicated. Our healthcare system is a rough one. I know that people in Canada... People in Europe <laughs> say you Americans are nuts, and yes, they do. You know, but what are we going to do? It is our system, and it stinks, but it is. By the way, Medicare, which also has open enrollment right now for the sixty-five million or so recipients, um, it's kind of also a pain in the neck yeah. because it, it is a little bit easier because they have tools on the website to say like, is my drug covered or not? But more and more people, of course, as you get older, you have different medications and your medications can be covered by some plans and not by others. And that can add up quite a bit. Yes. And trying to figure out, I'm at the age now where I get every single flyer for Medicare Advantage (laughs) saying you better do this or else you might not be covered. And uh, fortunately, I'm still working, so I don't have to worry about it yet. But once I retire, I don't know. I'm going to have to get the kids to do it for me because it seems... So my brother-in-law called me because he is also... He is working still. He has his own little company, and um, and he was saying, I need some help with Medicare. And so I said, let me give you the number of someone who can help you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I do that for my mother, not my brother-in-law. <laughs> All right. Well, it's not the best system, but it's the system we've got. So you don't, betcha. don't blow it off. Make sure that you... Um, Take advantage of open enrollment happening now at a website near you. Okay, thank you. CBS's Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Yep. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Let's talk naps. Do they protect your brain or do they leave you groggy and surly? Let's page the doctor. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Is there actual research going on into the perfect way to nap? And not surprisingly, there's a lot of information related to napping, and there is actual research going on. There's actually an interesting article published in Scientific American that actually reviews the topic. And, you know, as you might expect, it's, there's not clear-cut evidence that napping is good for you, but there's no evidence that, in fact, it's bad for you. What is recognized from research is there may actually be a sweet spot in terms of the amount of napping that you do. So, for example, there's a point in time where napping is good and may, in fact, enhance your cognitive abilities and whatnot and your performance at other activities. On the other hand, beyond some given point, and that point may vary from individual to individual, napping may actually reduce your performance. It may make you groggy and whatnot. And I think we've probably all experienced that. Right. I mean, I, I take a nap almost every day. And yeah, there are times you wake up energized, but there are times where you, you don't even remember what day it is anymore. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's what they're saying. And the thing is, it's, it's, it's an individualized thing. I mean, some of the research suggests that 30 minutes a day, which isn't really all that long, uh, there there's pretty good evidence uh, that you may be helping your brain 
age a little bit more healthily. So you, there's actually evidence to suggest that napping may slow the development of dementia and it may improve cognitive performance. In fact, there was an interesting study that was published about a decade ago that they referred to where they took people who uh, napped and they took people who didn't nap and they gave them uh, a series of math problems. And these math problems had a shortcut and then they had people nap beforehand and then and another group who didn't nap. And the group who did nap actually performed the exercise of the math problems 2.7 times faster than those who didn't nap, which I thought was really pretty interesting. And the thing is, is that they were much more likely to find the shortcut than those who didn't nap. So I think that's sort of an interesting experimental design to show the potential benefits of taking a nap. I should have napped before my SATs. They recommend that, don't they? <laughs> I definitely should have napped before my SATs. <laughs> All right. So are there, are there times of day where it is when it's best to take a nap? That's not clear and probably not. It's probably an individual thing. People who benefit the most from napping, it seems, are people who who develop a sleep debt. That is, they don't get adequate or good quality sleep at night. So people like shift workers, parents taking care of young kids who are awake at night, things like that. Those people develop a sleep debt and they benefit the most from napping during the day. And there is no clear-cut time where they get that benefit. And obviously, it's going to be a affected by what shift they're working, what time they're up in the middle of the night, and so forth. So how do you know? Is there is there a rule of thumb where you can tell yourself, I need a nap. That's what's wrong with me now. I need a half hour. You know, it's really uh, a trial and error approach. Usually it's suggested that uh, if you can find 20 to 30 minutes, that seems to be sort of the, uh, the sweet spot for most people, as we mentioned, that if you can find a time during the day in somebody who's a, you know, has a normal schedule, uh, you know, maybe in the early afternoon, that's when you might benefit the most. Obviously, if you get to work and an hour later you're taking a nap, that's probably <laughs> not the ideal time. But the thing is, is in addition, it's clear that good sleep and napping may contribute to this is that sleep is important for good metabolic health, good cardiovascular health for your blood pressure and for stress. So there's actually research that's been done that shows that uh, taking a nap can actually help with those things long term. And so that's interesting because the long term benefits are what people are studying. And that's looking at the things like cardiovascular health and, the, and dementia and so forth. And what if you can't fall asleep in the middle of the day? Then what do you do? That's why I think it's trial and error. I think it's it's one of those things that you, I don't think you can force yourself to take a nap. I think if you feel tired and you can sort of check out for a few minutes and, and get that nap, it's worthwhile. I think that trying to take a nap and force yourself could be quite a stressful event. You say, okay, I'm going to help my cardiovascular help. I'm going to help help my, um, my risk of dementia, and I'm going to take a nap every day at 2.30 in the afternoon. Well, if you lay there and you're not tired, you're going to feel stressed out, and that's not really going to help you either. And you may actually make yourself worse. So I think it has to be one of those situations where you feel tired, you feel like you're not performing well. Uh, maybe you have that, you know, after lunch, you have that postprandial sort of slump and you go and you take a nap for 20 or 30 minutes, it, it, you know, if you can do it. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. 715 Seattle's Morning News. They're mean, green, and multiplying out of control. Cairo News Radio's Kate Stone took a trip out to the coast to get a first-hand look at a big threat to the Pacific Northwest's seafood industry. 
Just off the coast of Washington lurks a big threat to the Puget Sound. Think less jaws and more claws. This is a green crab, buddy. That's a green crab? Yeah, it's a female. Invasive European green crabs are being called the cockroaches of the sea because they're nearly impossible to get rid of. They can wreak havoc on local ecosystems. And while they've made coastal Washington home for several decades, just in the last few years, something changed. Just a huge explosion of population. Miranda Reese is director of regulatory affairs at Pacific Seafood Group, which is working to turn the tide on a growing green crab crisis. They are having an impact on our Dungeness crab, which is a pretty lively market here on the West Coast. A single green crab can eat 22 clams a day, but they like a well-rounded diet, preying on scallops, oysters, mussels, and younger red crabs as well. If the seafood supply dries up, crab legs could cost you an arm and a leg at grocery stores and restaurants. A lot of local jobs, even salmon and orca recovery efforts are all on the line. But Washington is fighting back against this European invasion. In a small, standing room only, open metal boat off the shores of Westport, I watch Pacific seafood workers pull up 200 traps, one by one. While I try to keep my feet and recording equipment dry, farm manager Raul Membreno Torres plucks the green crabs from the traps. He swipes off the seaweed and shouts out a running count to the captain. 15, Christina. 15? Yeah. The green crabs go into a bucket. Everything else goes back in the water. How many do you guys get on a good day? About a thousand. Thousand green crabs a day? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes more. Once those green crabs are back on shore, into a giant freezer they go. Some of the crabs go to state fish and wildlife officers. To allow for research to be done on those received bodies. The rest end up in the disposal. No use for it right now. We haven't figured that out. For Raul and his team, green crabbing season is all year round. During the winter, we do it about five times a week. But they can't do it alone. We also have seen an expansion of the territory that those green crab are found. After a discovery at the Lummy Sea Pond near Bellingham in 2019, teams captured 41 green crabs there that year. But two years later, that number was at 86 the tribe declared a disaster in the Salish Sea. The crisis came so quickly and severely that Governor Inslee issued an emergency proclamation last year, a rare move for an invasive species. Now enlisted in this fight, the manpower of local farmers and seafood companies, plus millions in funding and resources from the state. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration calls green crab one of the most damaging marine invasive species around. It's hard to really know how many crab are out there. So if you see it, say it by snapping a photo and sending it to the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife as soon as possible. These crabs are not always easy to spot. In fact, sometimes they're not even green. The dungeon is, looks like this. Oh. They look the same to me. <laughs> their shell will be a giveaway. They'll have five spines behind each of their eyes, and they'll only be around four inches wide at most, smaller than a Dungeness. Overall, they just look very alien-esque. State officials say don't kill them because they're easily mistaken for native crabs. Don't try to transport them yourself, and no matter what, don't throw them back in the water. The most ideal thing to do is to locate a fish and wildlife officer, which they're typically around recreational beaches and things like that because they know how to properly handle them, but we absolutely do not want them thrown back into the estuary. As I sailed the sound, I had one question clawing at me. 
Can I eat the green crabs? They don't taste good. There's been some toying around with making things like some beers and bourbons. A green crab old-fashioned, anyone? That's using just a very minute amount of green crab in those. I mean, nobody would drink bourbon if it tasted like green crab. Some people seem to like them. There's recipes on the State of Oregon's website for green crab risotto, ceviche, and fried rice. There's even an entire cookbook dedicated just to making the green crab a culinary delight. Mm. Tastes like chicken. You may have to be the judge, because even those with a free green crab feast at their fingertips haven't done a taste test. Some people eat them, but I haven't seen anybody doing it. Have you tried them? No, no, I don't. Nate, do you know anybody eating this kind of crab? Uh, no. <laughs> so nobody's actually tried them? No, nobody. Interesting. Kate Stone, Cairo News Radio. <laughs> so, are you going to try some? You know, I wanted to. I wanted to bring some back for the station, and, and some people offered to cook it up, but I was going on vacation the next day, and I was like, do you want to try three-day-old green crab? But, <laughs> but like, how can it not. be that repellent? I mean, it's, it, it's got to have muscles in it like other crabs I can do, tell but... you, Dave, it did not smell good. <laughs> well, nothing <laughs> smells good right. when, you know, when you're just yanking it out of the sea. Oh, right. But... They are also very small. You would have to do a lot oh, of work to get, to get some meat yeah. out of these crabs. Well, I just ordered a lobster lately, and you got to do a lot of work to get meat out of those suckers, right. too. So, I mean... Imagine it's smaller than the palm of your hand, yeah, well, how many of those it would well, taste. Well, like a shrimp. I mean, a shrimp is tiny, what right? What was we so shocking, though? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. What are those Those what, down in the south? The, the, the Yeah, blue crab. Yeah, blue crab. The ones through Maryland, um, of course. What the soft was really shell. shocking, though, to hear is from the Lummi Nation, where yeah. they caught, what was it, like 16 green crabs? Uh, 41 in, 20, in 2019. So they found one in one of their shallow kind of estuary areas there, and they found 41 in the entire year of 2019. By t- the end of 2021, they were capturing 86,000. 86,000. Yeah. I mean, it's like they're the rabbits of the sea. The, so- the shallow, warm water was a perfect breeding ground for these crabs. And they can carry, I believe the females can carry over 200 eggs per My cycle. goodness. How did yeah. they get here? Yeah, that's a great question. They can they can hitch a ride on mm-hmm. barges and, you know, anything coming from overseas. They, they come from Europe. They're called the European invasive green crab. And so They've been here actually since the 90s. They were first discovered in coastal Washington in the 90s, but they have not exploded in population up until the last few years. So why now? It's a great question, and and there's still a lot that we don't know about this. And that's why I mentioned when the crisis hit, I mean, it's very rare to issue an emergency order for an invasive species. But Governor Inslee did so because, again, it went from, you know, dozens to tens of thousands in just a few years and it's tough to say i the the best guess that we have is that they entered areas like the like near bellingham where the lummy nation is where mm. it was the warm shallow they found perfect the sweet breeding. spot they found the sweet spot Darn. they found a lot of food and my heart goes out to the people at pacific seafood because the day that we went out on the boat it was nice it was sunny i was like well this is actually quite pleasant Right now, when it is raining in the winter, they go out five times a week just to pull up these traps. I mean, wow. it is raining sideways out there. Are there any there. natural predators for this thing? Unfortunately not. It, it doesn't appear that they have any natural Can we train predators. the orcas to eat them? That would, That's what I'm saying, right? <laughs> that would save two problems. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, they'll only eat Chinook salmon. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is, is that the green crab threatens young salmon. Uh, so the salmon are in danger, therefore the orca are in danger. So I'm assuming the way we can help is if you see something, say something 
doing, like yes. you said in your report. It's Absolutely. Not, it's not like we can go out there and start, you know, chucking no. green crabs ourselves. So they, they say, you know, again, it's very hard to tell. I couldn't tell the difference between a Dungeness and a green crab, especially when they all have seaweed on them and stuff. So they say, don't kill them. Don't try to take them on a road trip. Don't take them over to an office and say, here, because then they might end up in another area and we might have another problem. But they say, take a picture, alert a wildlife officer, don't put them in the trash, and definitely don't put them back in the water because they can breed like rabbits. Yeah. Kyra's Kate Stone. Thank you for continuing to fight for the ship canal. I do it for you, Colleen. Thank you. Every morning I got to drive over that thing. Brought to you by Robert W. Baird. It's your daily dose of kindness. Thanks to the power of imagination, a first grade class has achieved their dream to fly in a plane. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. You may walk to recess. At the Trinity Leadership School near Dallas, Sonia White's first graders are still flying high. Come all the way back and walk. Still reliving their amazing one day field trip south of the border. Where are you going? Mexico. To Mexico, I love your outfit. It was my first time on a plane. We went inside a cloud. I saw the ocean. Is that your first time seeing the ocean? Mm-hmm. At this point, you've got to be wondering, how could a school afford this? What kind of teacher does it take to fly a class of first graders to Mexico for a day? A very clever one. So just to be clear, you did not go to Mexico. We did not. You did not get on a plane. We did not. You never left the class. We did not. (laughs) What you're about to see is a testament to the power of imagination and the magic teachers have to harness it. Okay, let's find out. After Sonia's students told her their one wish was to fly on a plane, she went full throttle on the pretend. um, Boarding pass and your passport, please. Created travel documents for each child and then boarded them on their flight to Mexico. Okay, guys, we are now at 13,000 feet. You may take out a snack. We had a little turbulence. Boy, it did not scare me. But my friend Lorenzo had a rough landing. Really? What happened to him? He was like... The buy-in really was remarkable. One of my students saw somebody that night and they said, what are you doing here? I thought you were in Mexico. And he said, yeah, we were. We got back at three. And that's when I was like, they really think we went to Mexico. I'm writing you from Mexico. Teachers everywhere could use more resources. But the best always seem to figure out a way to take kids places. Often without so much as a bus ride. Did this fuel your desire for more travel? Yes. Do you know North Korea? Yeah, sure. Probably I do not want to go to next. I guess even pretend flights come with travel warnings. Yes. Steve Hartman on the road near Dallas. <laughs> that was great. Mm. And now from the Gian Ursula Show, calling from a remote location, here is G. Scott. So, what happened yesterday? Ran up against a Super Bowl contending team. Ran up against the Baltimore Ravens, who I believe are the best team in football. They're good on offense. They're good on defense. They're good on special teams. Even their hot dogs taste good in the concession <laughs> Everything about the Baltimore Ravens are good. It is the second worst loss uh, in Pete Carroll's career. Uh goes back to when they got beat up by the Rams all the way back in 2017. Hey, Here's the good news. 
The good news is the game is over with. <laughs> and here's here's more here's more good news. They get to come home and play their next game here in front of its fans. Look, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The Seahawks just were not good. Geno Smith, he needs to play better. The run game as far as rushing the football, the running back, they only had 28 yards rushing. Oh. That's not good. Oh, by the way, the Ravens, they had 300 yards rushing. Oh. Um, it, everything was – and then as far as the defense, the defense decided they didn't want to tackle, and it was bad. But I don't want to sit here and continue to talk about how bad things were. I want to talk about how much better things can be. I want to remind everyone that the Detroit Lions, who are a really good football team, yeah, they went to the Baltimore Ravens a couple weeks ago, and they got beat 38-6. to It wasn't good for them either. So mm-hmm. this Ravens team is really good, and that does not mean that this Seahawks team isn't good. Sometimes it's just not your day. Colleen, you ever have a day, or Dave, you ever have a day yeah. where you just yes. come in and you're just like, you know what, I didn't yeah. have it today. Yeah, absolutely. But, but does this mean, I mean, it sounds like they're really not playoff contenders if they can't do any better against this team. That doesn't mean that. You know what I mean? I, I mean, it doesn't mean that. It, you know, sometimes when I have a bad day on the radio, you know, I could just say that, you know, I'm really not made out for this radio. Well, actually, there's a lot of people that still I want to ask about the Seahawks' newest additions, because we did have high hopes that the additions would help elevate this team and beat the Ravens despite the loss. Uh, did they live up to, you know, what the Seahawks wanted from them? Uh, I don't think it was really about them uh, personally. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's a team sport. Frank Clark is new, and, and Leonard Williams is new. So I don't think that they really had that much of an opportunity to make an impact in that way. Again, it was just all together, and it also felt like. Can I ask you this? Can I ask you this? After the half, when it was, we knew it was a bad day. Why not just put in the second string and tell them, look, if you guys can win this game, you get a starting spot? Um. No, you can't do that. No. You gotta, you gotta, yeah, you gotta still buy in. Yeah, that's that would be almost as if you're basically saying, "Oh, things aren't going right. We're not going to battle, and and, and and we're going to kind of quit a little bit." Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that either, you know. And I know that right now, everyone is asking for Drew Locke, the backup quarterback. Everybody is a little upset with Geno Smith because, you know, Geno Smith, the last four games, I'll be honest with you, he hasn't really played his best. He's kind of done enough for them to win, but he hasn't played his best. Uh, No, it's not time for Drew Locke either. You know, this is the quarterback. This is the quarterback that will make $27 million this year. That's the paycheck he's getting. You have to buy in. You have to buy into him being the quarterback the rest of the season. He is the quarterback for the Seahawks, and hopefully coming home uh, this week against the Commanders, he will play better. G. Scott, 9 o'clock with Ursula. Thank you, G. See you guys. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And joining us is Casey McNerthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. The investigation into the shooting, the mass shooting in Maine, has shown that there were many red flags before the shooter opened fire. And the uh, the question becomes, how might such a thing have been handled here in Washington state? Uh, the laws are different. So, uh, Casey, for, how does our law here differ from what's in effect in Maine? 
in the state of Maine, they have uh, what they call a yellow flag law, which is not the same as what we have in Washington state with a, a red flag law. Uh, and the, really, the first step is if those concerns are shared with law enforcement. Um, here's Kim Wyatt, a senior deputy prosecutor in our office who works on cases just like this every day. Here in Washington, we have that ability for law enforcement and for family members to be able to petition the court for a civil court order that's designed to temporarily prevent somebody who's at a high risk of harm to themselves or others from accessing, purchasing firearms. And it also requires that the individual subject to those court orders surrender any firearms and concealed pistol license. So and. Extreme risk protection order is a civil tool that was approved by more than 70% of the voters statewide in 2016. And that temporarily can remove firearm access for people who are uh, a threat to themselves or others. And we often hear people say, oh, so you're trying to take people's guns away. But there's no way that you could get support for more than 70% of voters statewide if you didn't also have the support of reasonable, responsible gun owners. Talking with Casey McNerthney of the King County Prosecutor's Office. And Tell us about the the safeguards if somebody thinks they have been wrongly disarmed. The petition for it is done under the penalty of, of perjury, and, and this ultimately goes before a judge that, that makes the order. And then the person who is the subject of it has the option to say, no, I disagree, and, and to argue against it. So somebody who feels their, their guns are being unjustly taken away doesn't just have to accept it. They can get a lawyer and challenge it. Absolutely can, yeah. And and we sometimes see that, but that's an important step of the process, uh, you know. And we also see people who have come back and say, you know, I'm glad this process happened because it it, it saved me from, from you know hurting myself or others. Right. And so, how does it work if somebody has suspicions? You're really worried about a family member. Uh, how how do you start the process? There's a phone number uh, on our website, and, and the email is just erpo e r p o at uh, kingcounty.gov. Um, and if you Google it, uh, Erpo and King County, it's it's the first result. But uh, V Fawn is the person on the other end of the phone. And, and here's uh, V walking through the process. So if they were to contact our unit through their inbox, for example, through Erpo at kingcounty.gov, they would reach me most likely. I am the point person for the inbox and I will connect with them, to, preferably through phone call and try to assess the situation, help them guide them through the potential options. I think it's a really useful tool. I think that we need to explore every option that's available to them and really figure out what's best in their situation to help de-escalate the, the crisis situation. And so what resources may be available if somebody is a threat? Here's be walking through the options. If it's a concern primarily about this person's access to firearms or potential future purchase of firearms, and they could be a threat to themselves or to other people, then they would have to fill out a set of five forms and then also um, get a temporary order signed, typically within 24 to 48 hours. And then from then on, we would work on the service part to get the firearms safely surrendered to law enforcement at the point of service. They can also pursue a civil protection order within King County as well with an add-on of an order to surrender weapons. And the order to surrender weapons um, functionally is very similar to an extreme risk protection order in that it calls for the immediate surrender of firearms and concealed pistol license and also um, prohibits future access to firearms. And so that's one avenue that they can consider as well. If they're worried about this person coming near them, them or harming them, contacting them or stalking them. Okay. The other thing that we wanted to get a follow-up on was this drug bust in uh, Burien, which involved 41 pounds of fentanyl powder and 95 pounds of meth. What's the latest on that? And had a street value of more than $2.6 Burien 
police did some really uh, solid work here. And uh, they wrote that the defendant who was charged with three different felonies and also two aggravating factors that could lead to additional prison time if convicted, that he was here from uh, Sinaloa, Mexico, and came to Washington with the sole purpose of trafficking drugs. Uh, and, and he said it was at the direction of his boss in Mexico. This was filed by senior deputy prosecutor Candace Duclos, uh, and she worked on that case as it was developing. We see significant drug operations all of the time. Most of them are directly connected to the cartel out of Sinaloa, Mexico. This case was unique in that a majority of the time, these investigations go on from anywhere from a few weeks to many, many months. And they are then deciding when is the best time to seek a search warrant and ultimately take the case down. This particular case kind of spun up much quicker in that detectives were conducting surveillance, happened to get lucky and see our target receiving a large quantity of drugs from another person. And so rather than having that time and ability to plan, it had to be taken down right away. There's a wide variety of how these cases play out, but we do see them quite frequently. And the numbers overall through September are 267 uh, drug dealing cases. Uh, and and uh, those are the ones that are only filed on uh, business days. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that those numbers will go up uh, when we see the ones, you know, through last week. Um, and, and this kind of case shows exactly what law enforcement is mostly working on. Are those large amounts of fentanyl? It, it's really not that myth that we're going after, you know, uh, people with a single bag of weed. That, that it, it really is. We're really talking about the higher level cases like this one, um, and particularly meth and fentanyl. Um, and when we have those updated numbers, we'll get those for you next week too. And and these people who were accused in this case, they they were uh, purposely sent up here from Mexico by the cartel. Yeah, uh, that's what prosecutors and and what the investigators on the police side said. Yeah, and they they got that. They said directly from the defendant who said, hey, here's why I got here. I was on the direction of of my boss down there. So the people at the top of these cartels know that there's a a robust market for their product in Seattle. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And the good and bad news is Seattle's not unique. There's a robust market really in the cities big and small. And does the prosecution of this person send a message to the head of the cartel? Oh, it's not safe to send people to Seattle or is it just uh, next man up? I'm not sure about the message, but I am sure the police will keep going on average just like this one. Casey McNurthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Thank you, Casey. You bet. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.